0: That guy really loves his car, and uh, seriously, um, he actually, our church probably gave about a third of the cost of that car out of all of Australia, so they're really impressed with our uh, level of encouragement and our commitment only after one year of committing to the Yao people, so on behalf of John, thanks very much. Um, Just after that, he's tearing off down the road, and uh, he says, oh, watch, watch what can do, and he avoids trucks, overloaded vehicles and cars and goats and bikes, and Nico says, that's great, John, just watch the road. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'd like to say thank you so much for everyone who prayed for us, and um, I felt that greatly, and it's a humbling thing to be prayed for, which we'll hear about more of, but so much of uh, your prayers kept us safe, Um, particularly car accidents um, and sickness and illness but it also brought me um, what it taught me was how much do we pray for our guys our Aussie families that are there all the time the same issues that we faced over two weeks um, they face every day malaria, car accidents all the rest of it so thank you so much but it really encouraged me also to pray for them Another big thank you is for everyone who gave a dried apricot, a muesli bar or anything else, knitting machines, whatever. We had 150 kilos worth of gear at um, the airport and it all arrived in Nairobi and then down to Malawi so that was a huge thank you. They're not essential things but they're in- encouraging things. Um, and sometimes in Nicole's words, she said, it Margaret, it felt like two weeks of um, a life-changing sermon every day and no time to respond to it so what we're going to bring to you today is a very brief overview of our time away and uh, we hope this is an invitation for you to learn more and to go deeper uh, both here in Wodonga and overseas Overseas mission does not undervalue anything that's happening here in Wodonga and Australia. In fact, I think it sharpens it, clarifies it, teaches us how to be uh, more creative in our outreach. So we haven't really done much together. We've basically looked through the photos once. There was only 1,500. That's on Gail's camera. And then um, after that, we just divided them up and we're giving you a very brief reflection of a few points in there. Um, and uh, first we'll go to Malawi, uh, it's not a polished sermon so sit back, relax, we're going to make a heap of mistakes and um, then we'll have a bracket of songs and we'll take you to Nairobi. Jimbo, jump.
1: Thanks, Marge. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, someone knows it. Hello. Well, welcome to Malawi. got headings welcome to malawi gia works to bring the good news of the gospel the good news of salvation to the yao people in rural southern malawi the setting is amongst uh, grass huts in the open countryside there's goats and chooks wandering around and the people are what is known as ultra poor they are the poorest of the poor the tribal religion of the yao is islam With elements of traditional animism and this is known as folk Islam. Malaria and AIDS are prevalent everywhere and death is a daily occurrence. Their life expectancy is only 37 years. But the GIA team is bringing physical relief in the form of Total Life Care. It's a grassroots development program amongst the Yao people. And the GIA team is also bringing spiritual relief by introducing villagers to Jesus and the good news of salvation. This can be hard in an Islamic culture, but the GIA team are being quite innovative.
2: Hi. Okay. We met some fantastic people in Africa, including the missionary families. Let me get up to scratch including the missionary families not only is the work they are doing fantastic but the way they are giving up the security of this, of this country that we live in it's huge Ben Good who was the first person we met picked us up at the airport with his language learner Anusa who was teaching him Chiao the, lang- the Yao language Ben is a twenty one year old from Perth who is very friendly and loves to drive on the crazy and dangerous African roads. He's been in Malawi for three months, so he's the new kid on the block, but he has to fit into the group very quick he has fit into the group very quickly. He believes he is where God wants him to be and he's made made a commitment for two years in Malawi, but is unsure of at this stage where he will go from there. A huge percentage of his time is taken with learning the language and the culture and the rest of his time he spends with Scott or John visiting villages and development projects. The other single person in the team is Robin Hughes who is a trained nurse and has been in Malawi for three years and before that she spent some years in Mozambique. She has had a real passion and sometimes a burden to learn the Chiao language. She works very hard at it for she wants and needs to be able to speak it fluently before she can go on with the work she desperately wants to do as a nurse. She has a genuine love for these people that is obvious in what she says and does. One night after having tea with her, the phone rang informing her that her language learner's 10-year-old daughter had just died of kidney failure, which we were later told was preventable. So she and Ben had to then go and pick up this little girl's body with her mother from the hospital and take them home to Namwaran about 40 minute drive away. Scott or John would normally have gone with her but they were both going to funerals the next day. What a huge thing for them to do driving their car with this little girl's body in the back with the mother wailing all the way. I think this is something that happens quite often. The people are dying all around them. But I don't think that makes it any easier because she was clearly shaken by it. Robin is a very strong, can't read my notes, (laughs) sorry. She's a very strong person, but at times I'm sure she must feel very lonely. She asked us to be praying for her language learning and her safety as a single white woman in Africa, which can make her very vulnerable. We also met Scott and Catherine Gervin and their two girls, Amy and Rachel. They are planning to return to Canberra in about 18 months and have been there for about nine years. I think it has been a really hard time for this couple. Scott said for the first three to four years is hard, trying to learn the culture and the language and making connections. He said they are only now really seeing the fruits of their labour. But they have set it up and paved the way for the next lot of people to take over from them. Catherine has had it pretty rough too, as she's had a miscarriage since being there, but they also lost a little baby. But even though life hasn't been easy for them and still isn't, they are faithful to what God has called them to do, and we were in awe. John and Angela Wilmont have seven children, Michael and Sean, who are their biological children, and I forgot to ask Marg what the other children's names are, and they are.
0: Jessica's the youngest Um, then there's a Grace, Ruth, Martha Brian Blessing Grace, Ruth, Martha, Brian Jessica (laughs) and he's not allowed to go back to the orphanage on his own anymore
2: (laughs) where am I up to yes Okay. John and Angela are very enthusiastic and energetic, which you would have to be to have so many children. And that's what John was talking about with the car. It will allow another three children because it seats ten in the back. (laughs) Like Catherine, Angela homeschools all their children, which in itself is a huge task, but she is also the treasurer for the team. They too had a rough start to their work. John told us his Western mind had to be reshaped in a lot of his theories and theologies on how to do Christianity. So that took a lot of mistakes, but most importantly, a lot of learning. A few years ago... A few years ago, John was backing out of a village when a two-year-old boy who would greet him every time he visited, but also, like a lot of the children do, he ran after the car as he left... John didn't see him and ran over that little boy and killed him. Now, I think that if that was me, I probably would have packed up my bags right then and there and headed back for home. But to his and Angela's credit, they stayed and worked through it. I think John has earned a lot of respect from the family involved because of how he handled himself and cared for that family. He said that if Global International knew how he spiralled into depression and how long it took for him to get out of it and recover from it, they probably would have sent him home. But he relied on God to see him through. We very briefly met Wendy and Ian Dix and their children, Simeon and Benjamin. Wendy works part time in an orphanage that we were able to visit called the Alleluia Care Centre. The work being done there is fantastic and there is a huge need with so many adults dying of malaria and HIV AIDS. Ian is very involved in environmental and agricultural needs in Malawi and is also involved in translating the Bible into Chiao. So that is the team we met in Malawi who are doing a fantastic job in a very difficult and different environment to which we know. I think they continually need our prayers and support, and as the families deal with the environment their children are living in, in which some ways is protected from our Western ways, but they're also in a dangerous environment with cultural differences and health risks like malaria, and the single people being isolated from family and friends. I think they all feel very isolated, both physically and spiritually. Although they have each other's support, it is a very small team and they do miss the privilege that we all have coming together to worship God and fellowship together as a big family of believers. So please continue to pray for them and support them in the job God has called them to do. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, it says, Preach the word, be prepared in and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience, and careful instruction. And 2 Timothy 4.5, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all your duties of your ministry. And 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And for me, that sums up what, what we saw being done in Malawi, but it is also what God wants us to do.
0: Total Life Care is the uh, brainchild of global interactions' response to the extreme poverty amongst the Yao people. John Wilmont said he spent the first two years just sitting, listening and learning the language and the culture before mentioning the name of Jesus. How could anyone trust his Jesus without first learning to trust him? The common request and the need was for food. How can we say God loves you without responding to these basic needs? So this holistic ministry is woven into the aid and self-development of the communities. It was born in 2002 after years of consultation with the people and back home. TLC began the incredible journey of assisting communities to build on their capacity to deal with their own problems. In 2005 it was registered as an NGO. TLC is funded by AusAid and Baptist World Aid. John resigned in 2005 and Andrew is the director and he's seen here on the right, allowing John to focus on the life groups and the spiritual nourishment of the Yao people. Portia showed us around for the day and Richard are all part of the 27 paid TLC workers. The journey of TLC showed me how slow God's work can be but how closely we need to listen to the needs of others and not just assume that we know what they need to be creative in our outreach. Don't just model ourselves on past history or other churches. Find our own way to be Jesus to the communities around us here in Wodonga. <clears throat> Some of the things that they are doing is uh, things like poultry, the chickens used for eggs and the sale to supplement the income and the diet of a community, especially the ill Manure is used to help with the gardens and building of chicken coops to protect them. So there are 41 members just involved in this project alone. They're trained in management, including supplementary feeding. It's called a multiplication project, which means as many as possible can benefit and the learning is passed on and not kept for, for you. A great example of teamwork. Cassava seed growing plantation, a successful attempt at producing their own food but also crop diversification. This is Harold in the middle, who is a major planner and overseer of many of the projects in TLC. Village chiefs are very supportive of these new innovative ideas and everywhere we went we were introduced to the village chiefs who are very welcoming of TLC. These women are carrying maize on their heads and they're always seen walking or working together. Their main daily task is growing, hoeing a field, sowing, harvesting, storing, pounding, cooking and turning into yagali, which Gail hates. That's a low form of iron but it's very starchy and she didn't die. Crop diversification requires a few seasons to develop. Watering and tendering is all by bucket, but here you can see results and also why it's important to keep livestock like goats and chooks caged up. Sometimes the temperatures out here reach 40 degrees, which is why I didn't take a team in October, November, and so the work is very slow and hard. To speed things up, there is a five-acre plot of land which has been bought by TLC and together they're hoping to develop a school and uh, a classroom and call it a demonstration farm. Many things are in the process. Here we have rabbits used as a form of youth involvement to assist those in extra, extra need. This rabbit is called Jimbo. There are six points to the TLC overall focus areas and one of them is lifestyle protection, production of goats and rabbits and food availability and diversity of all work towards healthier communities. Here are one of two women who deal with all the births in this little village. It's basic, it's rough, and we saw a woman lying on a sheet of plastic on a hard concrete floor, so my patients this afternoon better not complain. The attendants were equipped with gloves and they had string ties for cord. Behind this, the attendant, is the ambulance. Can you see the ambulance? It's there. It's a bike and a frame. That frame is attached to the back of the bike, and it has a wheel on the back of the frame. And it's only a 10K dirt ride to the nearest health facility. One in 15 women die in childbirth in Malawi so improving health outcomes for women in birth is one of the focus areas of TLC and the best way to do that is to have someone like Robin Hughes uh, learn the language and address the health issues and the education of these women. Goat production. This village welcomed us with singing and dancing and we're not going to show it to you because it explained the the love they have for people of uh, of the TLC. We didn't feel worthy of any of this sort of welcome but it happened every village we went to and it just shows you how much the chiefs uh, respect the work of TLC. Uh, In this village they uh, showed us how they were using soya beans now to improve their health And they gave us maize and in return we gave them bread rolls which was a story in itself. This is a Boab tree and I put it in because we saw a lot of these cut down. That's a really sad thing to see a beautiful tree cut down. But this is the agroforestry growth which is so encouraging. Thousands of trees are being planted and protected to sustain the next generation as well as care for the land. Environmentalists are badly needed in developing countries all around the world. God has given us the land to care for. Please keep praying for these innovative, young, enthusiastic families. They're not career mysteries. As Nico said, some of them are coming home soon. And I believe it's a challenge to myself and, and to the church and leadership here. Who's going to take their place? Who's going to take their place here in, amongst the Yao people or in other places around the world? I think our church is part of the big mission picture and our church needs to be in the business of also raising up mission-hearted people to carry on the work. I found the beautiful thing once again, having been there in January and seeing a different season and different projects, that the wonderful thing about TLC and global interaction is the harmony of the gospel underpinning everything they do. This is not random work. It's an intentional strategy towards the kingdom of God being planted in the hearts to transform communities.
1: The gospel ministry um, and the spiritual outreach among the Yao is uh, its very different to anything that we'd expect here in Australia. Um, it's pr- quite hard to get my head around for a start, but there's no revival tents. There's no famous big note speakers from anywhere else, not even Malawi. And there's actually no buildings at all. But this is because the Yao are mostly a Muslim people. The traditional church has struggled with the Yao because to reach a Yao villager with the news of Jesus and salvation would then require that person to to travel many miles away from the village every Sunday and to leave their family and to leave the life that they know. And all this would just be so that they could go to a huge building, someone like this one, with a lot of confusing rituals and some strange men dressed in weird costumes serving biscuits and to top it all off they'd have alcohol there and that's just obscene. So to a Yao person, the village and their surroundings are their life. So leaving these would mean leaving their entire livelihood. So the team at GIA are bringing Christ to the village. It's a Christ-centered faith and it's driven by the villagers. It's driven by a desire from the GIA team for the Yao to know salvation through the Messiah, someone they haven't heard of. And they're only just now hearing it in their own language. And it all takes place right here in the village, under a tree or on someone's veranda. These faith communities are in their infancy and they're known as life groups. Because to use the word church would be just far too confronting in a Muslim culture. The essence of life groups is that they are run by the Yao believers themselves. And the Asungus and the white people, they only make occasional, villages, uh, occasional visits to the villages. John and Scott uh, and the team from GIA, they really concentrate on building up the leaders and training them in some deeper biblical understanding and some deeper um, issues about leadership. Because of the Islamic context of this ministry, many things that our culture would consider Christian essentials are missing. There's no churches. There's definitely no crosses. There's no kids' church for the kids. They just shut up and listen. And they don't even meet on Sundays. In fact, believers are encouraged to continue praying at the mosque on Fridays. They continue to Encouraged to abstain from haram or unclean foods, and they're continued um, encouraged to abstain from alcohol. But um, despite the growth, persecution will come. Uh, As we travelled from village to village in the Troopy, Scott and John told us of a time they foresee in the future when the Holy Spirit will call believers to repentance and to baptism. A time when Yao believers will will long to have a distinctive faith community apart from Islam. A time when they will long to be identified by the cross of Christ. And this will be a time of persecution for the Yao. But meanwhile, the good news of salvation continues to spread. In a unique kind of African storytelling style, very animated... Because they're they're based on an oral culture and they love stories, the GIA team worked tirelessly, tirelessly to prevent present the gospel to the Yao. All this is done so that the Yao will choose to follow Jesus Christ, and then one day we will worship with them together in heaven.
3: But despite their poverty, their hunger and their great needs, the our people are spiritually rich. They are hungry to know more of God. And even though most still don't believe that Jesus is God's son, there are still similarities in the God that we worship. They believe in the one and only God as we do and therefore they sit and listen intently to the animated stories that they, um, the uh, leaders give of God. Men, women and children... Even the chiefs of the villages gather round and they love listening to what the leaders of the life groups have to say about God. But it might surprise them to hear that God loves them, but it also brings them joy that he is merciful to them. We saw them challenged and convicted when they learned that God is, punishes their wrongdoing, but they were also relieved to hear that God will forgive them if they turn back to him. This challenges their perception of God, or Allah, when they hear that he is merciful loving and forgiving, but many receive these challenging ideas positively because of the sensitive ways that it is being presented to them. I was amazed to see that despite their strong Islamic religious culture, they welcomed white Christian Westerners such as us amongst their midst, and I think this is a testament to the solid foundation of relationships that John Scott and Ian have built over the past few years with these people. I believe that God is really blessing their spiritual hunger, even though their idea of God may be wrong. they still desire to know Him. As Jesus says, "Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. This is a picture of God's grace. His givings not dependent on what we know about Him, on how well we behave or what culture we're born into. But God just asks from us that we seek him. And he promises then to respond. And he's asking all people from all over the world to seek him. And we've seen God's amazing grace displayed as the Yao people love him. And we've seen the Holy Spirit breaking boundaries amongst Muslims as they're coming to know Christ, which is very exciting. So what does the future hold, though, for the ongoing proclamation of Christ to the Yao people? I have four... um, Kind of prayer points to bring up. The first one is the ongoing translation of God's words, the Bible, into their own language, which is Chiao. For the past seven years, there's a small team of about five people who have been carefully translating the Bible into their language. So far, in seven years, 11 of the 66 books have been completed. They've also produced three, which is two that we see here on the screen, little booklets which they've distributed and have actually been accepted positively by the Muslims. Um, which are actually booklets that outline some of the major stories of the Old Testament in the Bible, especially on creation, fall, and our need for a Redeemer. So please pray for the ongoing work of um, translating the Bible. Pray because without the words of God available to the believers amongst the Yao, their growth and their maturity will be stunted. Pray for the team doing the translation work, that they'll continue to be patient and to persevere, that they'll be wise and that God's words may be preserved into the Chiao language. And also pray that the Bible will then be accepted and used by the Yao community for the growth of his kingdom in the long-term future. The obvious challenge um, which will continue for a long time is the ongoing spread of Islam. Um, Islam is progressively pursuing the complete Islamisation of southern Malawi. And this is certainly evident. As you've seen many pictures of mosques already, we saw mosques and Islamic schools scattered everywhere, at least one every three to five kilometres. The power of Islam is overwhelming because it imprisons people into an unhealthy fear of God and it is a major barrier to people accepting God's Christ-saving grace. So please praise that the Islamic advances would not halt the growth of God's kingdom. Pray that the believers will be protected from being cast from their families and their villages, that they will be able to remain in their own community so they can then share the love of Jesus with their families. Another major challenge is the ongoing development of local leaders. Of the, As you've heard from James, there are many Yale believers that have been raised up and that John and Scott are training to lead life groups and to be examples to their communities. These team of leaders meet weekly with John where they um, have ongoing deeper training um, and biblical learning of Jesus. They are encouraged and they're able then to communicate in that setting their conflicts, their real issues that they're having in their communities and then they're able to pray for that. These leaders, though, are the future for the work of God's kingdom amongst the Yao because you've heard the reality is Australians cannot sustain the work but more importantly, they will not stay. It must be the work of the Yao in their own communities. So please pray that the local leaders... Um, They will continue to grow into a greater depth and maturity in their understanding of Christ. Pray for their protection against illness and death and their continual development of more leaders. But last of all, let's praise God because his spirit is breaking boundaries and Muslims are coming to know the joy of receiving God's grace. Jesus' presence was certainly um, so strong when we saw the joy in their hearts as they sang songs and danced. And this was a very common occurrence, what you see. Every time, nearly every village we went to, they wanted to sing and dance. And we really got into that, and it was really fun. And they've got no shame in displaying their gratitude to God and their love for him. So my prayer for us, too, is that we will continue to learn from them. Be as honest and genuine in our praise in God, and our display and love for him.
4: So what did we come away with what what could we apply to us here in our church? well I think one of the things that we came away with was that we were really challenged to think about the church as being without walls you know everywhere we went in Malawi we saw as um, Carolyn said every few kilometers and And do it for me. They know I can't do that technical stuff. <laughs> they actually ran mine through. <laughs> That's great. See, I don't have to do a thing. Um, every few kilometres, we saw, as Carolyn said, a mosque. And almost every kilometre after that, we saw a very traditional Christian church building. And at one stage, some of the local people with a wry joke said, it's a bit of a competition, isn't it, to see who can build the most churches and the biggest churches, the Christians or the Muslims. And we were challenged by that. It really hit home to us that here, the GIA team, were actually doing church, but actually without walls, without a building, And they were going out, out into the communities and their God was really doing some amazing work. And I think the challenge comes for all of us here to think about how we do church here. Sometimes I think, and I was really challenged about this, that we do have an almost um, isolated mentality that we expect people to come in but we really don't very often expect to go out and in Malawi people are going out and it's making a difference. The other thing that I think we can learn and apply here is that in Malawi there are a number of different tribes as in every country in Africa hundreds and hundreds of different tribes and in one country this particular tribe, the Yao, are the poorest of the poor they are Muslim whereas most of Malawi are Christian and so the Christians there they're growing, we presume they're growing we we really didn't meet many local indigenous Christians aside from the, the Yao that had had come to be followers of Jesus but I guess the thing that struck us was the very few indigenous followers of Jesus that were actually making it their um, concerted uh, approach to try and bring the gospel message to the poorest of poor in their own country. It actually has taken an outside influence to identify this group and to work within this group. And I think the teaching, for me at least, was that it challenged me to think, where do I live? I'm a middle-class, white, Western woman and yet I am called by God to work in this church, but also in this community. And when I think about the community around where God has placed this church, I I realise that he's placed this church in a high public housing area. And I really had to think, do I know what it's like to live on a pension? Do I know what it's like to wonder whether... I'm actually going to be able to feed my kids at the end of the week or what it's like to, to just make do perhaps on a very low wage. And then I started to think about our church and I know some of you do struggle with that every, every week but many of us don't and how many of us are really interfacing with our community. Have we got a siege mentality here? And, and my prayer has been, Lord, don't let me slip back into my culture without really continuing that fire, that passion that's within, that, that you seeded within me to realise that the gospel message is for the lost, but it's for the very poor as well. It's for everyone. And how is that to inform us here in Wodonga? How are we to respond? There's some challenges, I believe. You see, I've learned that God is a God that loves all people. I think we knew that before we went, but it was certainly reinforced And how can it be that there is this freedom to speak the word of God to people who have only understood a harsh God like the Muslims and yet remain Muslim culturally? This is what is happening. Culturally, these followers of Jesus are remaining within their culture. And we don't understand what God is doing there But we can only marvel at the diversity, the radical nature of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel. And I think that's what we took away from us as well. That we get so bound by what we understand God to be in our culturally specific way. And yet we came to understand that God is big, God is love. But the kingdom of God is actually small. God is big, but the kingdom of God is small. It's as small as a mustard seed. It's as small as a precious pearl. But when it is found or when it takes hold, we have come to see this team. There is nothing, absolutely nothing on earth that can stop it. Even a different faith, a different religion. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God from becoming fully realised here on earth. But it's so small and that's the power of it. We were challenged to realise that just one or two people can make a difference. We were challenged to realise that this powerful message... So maligned by the world, when it takes hold, becomes like a raging forest fire. It is the only way the kingdom can be established on earth as it is in heaven. And we've learned that Christianity or being followers of Jesus is not just coming to church on Sunday. It is living a life completely sold out to the author of life it's radical, it's different, it's unpredictable, it's exciting and that sometimes it's risky. Sometimes it will look different. And yet we've seen God's hand at work. The gospel message, according to John Wilmot, is reversing the effects of the fall and God's proclamation of the good news of, the, of his son, Jesus Christ. And it was exciting and it was a privilege. But I'd just like to leave you with those thoughts. How is every one of us changed by this experience and what are we going to do about it? It's no good just spending that money and going over there and saying, oh, this is what they're doing over in Africa. How has it changed us? But what are we going to do about it? And I guess our prayer, our team's prayer has been that maybe the changes that you see in us will start to impact you guys as well and that we'll be more intentional intentional about doing what God calls each and every one of you to do where he has got you planted fearlessly radically, riskily, but doing it anyway. Thanks.
1: As we travelled through some of the, uh, the poorest parts of the places we travelled in Kenya and Malawi, that song was going through my mind. Um, and the, the refrain that says, you give and take away, was going through my mind and I thought when I left Australia that God had given to us but he'd taken away from poor people but by the end of the trip I realised that that had turned on on its head in some ways that the poorer you were sometimes the more you had and the richer you were the less you had. So get out your passports and your boarding passes because we're about to fly two and a half hours on Air Malawi, Africa's safest airline and we're going to fly north to the beautiful country of Kenya. We're landing in Nairobi, which is sub-Saharan Africa's second biggest city, and it is big. When I think of Kenya, I think of wildlife. And I was looking forward to seeing some. Some of it's not that wild. It's learnt how to live with civilization. And yet some of it remains beautifully untamed. Yet to me, the word that described Nairobi was confronting. Thick clouds of diesel smog every day, chaotic, unmaintained roads with no road rules, a lack of any urban planning with factories and houses all mixed up together, and just the sheer number of people walking along the road everywhere. The inner city, as you saw, is uh, highly westernised, it could be called good, much of suburbia, Um, and the outlying areas of the city is bad, and uh, a lot of the slums are just plain ugly. Nearly two million people live in these conditions, and they're not pretty. These are the slums. They're homes to displaced Kenyans from all over the country, and they're home to a cycle of poverty, which is just unimaginable here in Australia. Since independence in the 60s, Kenya has struggled to provide for itself. Some people have won, but the vast majority of people live with no choices in life. The best that they can hope for is that someone pulls them out of the grimy, gritty, ugly, smelly, disease-ridden lifestyle of urban poverty that they endure every day. Yet despite the filth and despite the poverty, the disease, the pollution and just the daily grind of life, many millions of Kenyans love Jesus and they're proud to show it. Kenya is a Christian country. Everywhere in Nairobi, stickers on cars and buses and trucks proclaim that Jesus is Lord or Christ is King. The poorer the part of town, the more little churches and prayer chapels there are. Saturday morning TV on Kenya's main TV station doesn't consist of cartoons. It's a sermon from the book of Daniel by a big, excited Kenyan evangelist. Offices, shops, even driving schools are all named to the glory of God. And trust me, you need a lot of prayer when you're driving in Kenya. Churches, prayer chapels and Christian outreach is everywhere And like I said, the poorer the place of town, the more you seem to see. Kenyans love Jesus, and it really shows. We spent our time in Nairobi with staff from African Enterprise. We don't hear about it much in Australia, but here's a good news story from Africa. Kenyan people working for the good of their country. AE's mission is to evangelise the cities of Kenya, and more broadly the cities of Africa, in partnership with the church and with our support our engagement and our prayer African Enterprise can continue to raise up another generation of Kenyans who choose to put their hope in Jesus and there's something about that hope that they have it confronted me it seems to be a hope that has something to do with the lack of material possessions the lack of material comfort that they have Jesus said to Kenyans in John chapter 14, he would, he would go to heaven and he'd prepare a mansion for them. And I now realise I will never understand that verse, no matter how hard I try, because I live in a mansion here on earth. Kenyans long to have a place which is safe to dwell in. And Jesus' promise of such a place in heaven gives them a deep joy And it can't be taken away, even by their confronting surroundings.
4: We lost our hearts in Nairobi, all of us. The poverty was unimaginable. The people were incredible. Psalm 107, 41 to 43 says... He lifts the needy out of their suffering and makes their families multiply like flocks. The upright see it and rejoice, and all injustice shuts its mouth. Let whoever is wise pay attention to these things and consider the Lord's acts of faithful love. On our first day of arriving in Nairobi, we went to this slum, Cotton Slums, it's a slum that Marg and her family have been to. And we we were just it was just like, wow, first off, culture shock. Because this is a slum, not a very big one, that is just on the outskirts of yet another slum. And it is a community. And what I came to understand is that these are not temporary dwellings for people. These are permanent. Homes, and these people will will probably never leave here. This is a cardboard house that you 're seeing. I took photos of the inside to show you that that this amazing uh, woman of God she is a teacher here, African teacher, and she lives in that house. She teaches in a school in that slum. The school was a plastic dwelling until nine months ago, and it became a tin shed. And here she is here. She teaches 50 pupils. And the other beautiful thing about what God is doing is that this slum was particularly um, laid on the heart of uh, one of our African hosts, friends of Marg and John, Anne and her husband Joseph. They are um, ordinary people like you and I, loving Jesus, They attend a church and their small group have taken it upon themselves to transform this slum. Once again, the kingdom of God is as small as a mustard seed. What they've done is, first of all, built um, the water tower so that these people have drinking water in conjunction with um, Margie and John's family. And it just continues to astound me that we can make a difference. Um, And I had a new perspective while I was over there on the loaves and the fishes because Jesus stopped preaching to feed the people. And and this is Africa all over. You cannot preach the good news unless you address the whole person physically and spiritually, both are one and the same. 14 million people in Kenya live in slums. Kilometres of rusting iron, cardboard and plastic houses. No running water, electricity or sewage. No roads, little children diseased, no schooling, only for the lucky ones, AIDS and alcoholism. And I wondered, how could I live like this every day? How could I do it? And then I realised, and I think I said this last week or the week before, Jesus lives like this every day in the slums. He lives in that tin shed. He lives in the cardboard box. He lives with the family with AIDS. He lives with the woman who has to prostitute herself. He lives with the men who have no work. He walks among the sewerage and rubbish and he plays with the little children. We can't preach the gospel of peace without addressing poverty and injustice. And we can only address poverty and justice if we preach the gospel of justice and peace. In Africa, faith and works go hand in hand.
2: Okay. On our second day while we're in Nairobi, we we're given the privilege to visit Mathari Women's Project just on the outskirts of Corrigocho slums. This amazing project, set up by African Enterprise, reaches out to women who are trapped in a socio economic web of HIV, AIDS, and poverty. AE realised that a spiritual renewal for these women is just not enough. They need the opportunities to change the cycle of poverty known to generations living in those slums. In James 2, 14-17, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, and I wish you well, keep warm and well fed but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. These women are given the chance to learn how to make uniforms and other items to sell, demonstrated by my husband. <laughs> they do a 12-month course which, uh, where if they graduate... They are given a sewing machine uh, on loan to set up their own business and then they must give it back so it can then go to the next woman to do the course. Veronica, an AE worker, leads them in prayer, singing and teaching at the beginning of each day and you could see the joy on each lady's face. We were able to present them with three knitting machines that were donated and boxed up by generous people in this church. I was so proud to be a part of that team to represent to represent the generosity of this church and the women were just so happy they sang and danced for us and they made us dance with them it was overwhelming how appreciative they were the knitting machines were a bit of a worry before we left not knowing how much it was going to cost to take them over with us and if they would be working once they got there. But God is good. After much prayer and lots of phone calls, they were able to be taken free of charge. And before we left home, we were told that all three machines were up and running. Now that has given three more women the chance to change their whole life. They will be spiritually renewed by the teaching given and they will be given the opportunity to break out of the poverty cycle which not only will change that woman's life but her whole family. The job ahead for the AE workers seems too big and very overwhelming. The slums to look at just go on and on as far as the eye can see. You look at rusty corrugated roofs but these people are just like you and I but they've just been born in a different country. 1 Thessalonians 1-2 says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father the work you... Father, your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's um, what AE are doing in the Korrigocho slums. They are just pouring out their love and they are working faithfully.
0: You might have got the idea we did a lot of singing and dancing over there. We did, so move over worship team. (laughs) How does building a toilet in the slum of Nairobi fit into the kingdom work? As you've just heard that uh, uh, Nairobi is a city, it's actually twice the size of Sydney um, but half the geographical size and then 70% of those people actually live on 2% of the land. There's about 500,000 living in Corrigocho on 65 acres and uh, this is a little city within a city and it's a world that leaves you stunned at the capacity of man to live a meaningful life amongst it all. Their resiliency to... uh, face life struggles is amazing so here you have a toilet and um, a very great looking team now these toilets we've got one built by Wodonga Baptists and the others were um, all got Wodonga Baptists written on them but were given by uh, one generous donation from this church who wanted that name on them so we saw a lot of toilets this day being married to a plumber helps so orphanages exist in, within Corrigocho and I'm not quite sure how they all go but we just walked around the corner of one toilet we'd visited and uh, here was this little group of orphans and uh, can you imagine life without sewage for these kids that quickly leads to spiralling poor self-image and a strong sense of hopelessness. Here's another toilet. African Enterprise has been building them for about nine years before we uh, discovered this little project. And um, each latrine now, we've got a bit of an idea where to go, but we're trying to get one for every 25 families. It restores dignity, it improves health, and actually saves lives. One of the best things I've learned about the building of a latrine on this last visit is how much one latrine can actually enhance and encourage small churches to develop community programs. To witness to Christ needs to be both word and deed. And in African enterprise, just like TLC and Global Interaction in Malawi, we have developed a harmony of faith and works spelt so clearly out in the gospel. Becoming an encourager for those who choose to work here and present Christ through word and deed is a privilege and it humbles me every time. UNICEF and the World Health Organisation quote that one child dies every 15 seconds just from a diarrhoea-related illness. So African Enterprise also build water kiosks to prevent drinking water from being contaminated with sewerage. Idleness and unemployment, lack of education, results in despair, leads to a fatalistic attitude and a vacuum for other religions to present themselves to a very vastly hungry generation. Can churches be stronger in these places? Well, the answer is yes, because we've met them. It clarifies to me, why did Christ come down to earth? As James said, he left a home in heaven. His robe touched the ground, it dragged in the mud. For his hands to touch the children who rarely wash. He left a home as grand as heaven and walks amongst us every day. Once again, I saw the face of Jesus in Corrigocho through his faithful workers. Once again, I marvel at the fact that Christ loves every man, woman and child in Corrigocho just as he loves me. I've had a privileged life and what am I going to do with it? The answer is I've got to return it. This is a photo of the Scott School toilet that's been built. It's not a fantastic photo there but the amazing thing about these little places is that there's a pastor, Peter and his wife, in this little church and now I can see the relationship between that and being Christ. I know it's weird, but it does. It empowers this little church now to have um, an HIV, living positively with HIV program for women. And so it gives them a really positive outlook and an income. Without supporting these tiny little churches in these slums, um, they, they just go under. The, the uh, circumstances around them just need so much support. It was great to see this little, um, I don't know what that is. There we go. it's great to see the close correlation between the social action and spiritual renewal it's so evident in the scott school funded toilet the evidence is clear that so many little churches in these desperate dark places need our encouragement in psalms chapter 139 verse 8 i read it kind of describes where can i go and escape your spirit where can i go and run from your sight climbing to the highest heavens you would be there to dig down to the darkest place, to the world of the dead, you would be there. I feel every time I walk in these places that God's presence needs to be lifted so, up, so high up. His faithful workers who live and minister here need so much encouragement to keep on keeping on. Once again I saw the face of Jesus this day as I sat in front of Peter the pastor and speak of his parish and their needs. I feel a privilege to learn under him for a short 20 minutes. What a special time to feel God's presence in places of desperate need. Certainly the forces of darkness are so evident amongst places like Corrigocho. I'm encouraged to keep building latrines to be a part of the AE plan to present Christ through word and deed.
3: And uh, we've all heard about HIV-AIDS. We all know that it's an epidemic in Africa and we all have heard the stats and have seen the devastating pictures on TV. But as a team, we've now been privileged to uh, meet real people suffering with HIV-AIDS. And it confronted us, it challenged us, but I think for me it also was really encouraging to meet the people who are living in this situation but who are still rejoicing in God. So we visited a project of AE here where they train up to about 100 what they call home-based care workers a year. They learn how to care for those dying with AIDS at home and they also um, go into their homes, they physically care for them but they also help their families and their carers throughout this hard time. This was the one privileged opportunity where we as a team were invited into the homes of a local family within a slum and we were Broken into two teams, and so Gail myself and Nicole went to one family and Mark and James to another and Even though their homes and their community might look filthy and run down, this is a place where the hearts this is where the heart of the people live and even this slum here was actually described as not such a bad one so the lady that Gail Nicole and myself uh, went and visited was the name the lady here whose name was a and she's been suffering from HIV for about 15 years but only recently has had a dramatic uh, decline in her health and is basically now bedridden after being in hospital for about a month because of this she can now not work and she's actually a trained home-based care worker herself and has been caring for people with aids for many years so because she cannot work she cannot afford to pay rent and all can she um, and rent for this is only one bedroom This is only one room house, sorry. Three of them now sleep in and basically that's all. And she cannot afford to pay for home food or she cannot physically care for her 10-year-old son. So therefore her sister has now moved into this house to help care for her as well as her son. You'd be understood for asking how God, good, loving and gracious God, could allow this to happen to a beautiful single mother with a 10-year-old son dying at the age of just 37. It would appear that she has no hope. But it's her hope that has challenged me because she only had praises for God. She spoke through broken sentences and through gasping breaths. She had tears on her face as she spoke about her joy in Christ. But Christ has saved her from her sins, and she praises Him for that. She truly was an example to me of someone living for Christ, despite her earthly struggles, despite the fact she's dying. She lives for her heavenly hope that she has in Christ. In two Corinthians five fourteen to fifteen, it says, "God's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died." And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who raised them from, for them who died and was raised again. So Winkate, though was dying, knows the joy of living for Jesus. As we walked away from her home, tentatively through the mud and the rubbish, her sister spoke words that summed it all up for us and which I don't think we'll ever forget. She said, don't look down at the ground, but do what we do. Look heavenward.
4: We're going to wind it up now. I know it's been confronting, but that's okay, because it was confronting. I'm just going to wind up by just showing you briefly Dandora Orphanage, so prepared for more confrontation. Um, just, I'm just going to speak to it. Father, Pastor, Father heart, <laughs> Pastor, John Oslo lives in the slums. This is his orphanage. It is the most run-down... Uh, I don't think we put chickens in chicken coops like Pastor John has had to scrounge and... ...build an orphanage in Dandora. Um, Sorry. I'll just let you know how many. He has... This is for 150 children during the day. It's the tiniest little place. That's the kitchen. And he's managed... If you go into the kitchen... ...he's managed to have two big bags of rice... ...which were donated by the Save the Children's Fund... And that's to keep the children going for a month. Uh, that's the only food that they have. Um, he also has managed to scrounge timber and a little bit of tin and a little bit of plastic and whatever to make three schools for these orphans, orphaned through AIDS. These are the schoolrooms. So next time your children, you want a fundraiser at your school for the flash auditorium or whatever, just have a look at these schoolrooms that these children have to um, sit in. So what? Com- this is Father John Oslo and his son Lucas. And Lucas just struck me, an amazing young man of God, who, because of circumstances, is is helping his father in the slum, but... Um, actually I think we all saw in him such enormous potential if he had funding to be educated this young man could be used even more powerfully by God changing, he is is being used by God but perhaps at a leadership level he just had enormous leadership skills and out of their poverty they gave to us so God, we've really gone over time and I'm really really sorry I'm going to get into big trouble <laughs> but what can we say about all of this what we can say is that despite the overwhelming sense of just unbelievable poverty that God's kingdom is alive and God's kingdom lives in us. That's how he is building the kingdom of God through individuals like Pastor John Oslo and others that said, here I am, Lord. I'm ready to go. I will do whatever I can. And this man is doing what he can with what he has, which is so meager. And and we were just changed by this experience by the whole of africa but particularly the experiences that we saw in the slums we were changed to come back and realize that out of our wealth out of our material wealth maybe sometimes we lack the spiritual we have spiritual poverty maybe we don't but that was a lesson that we thought God was telling us. And the other thing we, we we felt too was that out of our affluence, our affluence is what the devil is using to put almost a veil over our eyes so that we, we become immune to the suffering and the poverty of what is happening in the world. Affluence is a real faith killer because when we don't have to rely on God for for our basic food or our basic survival, our faith becomes dulled, our faith becomes numb. And so I guess continuously our prayer has been, Lord, continue to change us, help us not to be lulled back into a sense of, um, a false sense of comfort and security. When I, I guess I just can sum up by saying something that Marg, continually said and that is Africa might need our resources but we need Africa. We need Africa to keep us on track spiritually, to keep the fire alive in our hearts for the broken, for the lost, for the poor. Thank you.